About six, seven weeks ago, Pastor Jeff asked me if I would teach this morning so he could take some time off. And of course, he wanted me to talk about missions. Well, you know, um, let's just say I do that a lot. And so I started asking God for something fresh and maybe a different approach in which to make us reconsider our role in the world and what God has called us to. And I realized as I was studying through the book of Acts chapter by chapter and writing down the things that I saw God doing, that many times in the scripture, Jesus comes in unexpected ways. And certainly I know when I came to faith in Christ, he encountered me in an unexpected way, and you guys probably have um, that same experience. Um, The people of Jesus' day expected him to come as Messiah in a way that he didn't. They were, they were shocked. Some people wanted a political ruler because they were oppressed by the government. They were pushed down. They were squelched. Some people thought the Messiah would come with a new set of rules to follow because that's what the Pharisees had um, dangled over their heads and enforced in them, that the only way to know God was by following a set of rules because they didn't understand, on one hand, God's goodness, And on the other hand, they didn't understand his grace and what he was about to do for all people, that all people would come to know him. Not that all would choose relationship, but God's heart was for all his creation to know him. On the Greek side, people wanted a philosopher. They wanted somebody who'd come in and tickle their ears and give them something to consider, and not much more than that. It didn't require commitment. It didn't didn't require a change in lifestyle. It was just fanciful brain candy, and we can certainly fall into that. Some people really just wanted a new lifestyle. They wanted to agree to a certain set of beliefs, but just go on their way living their lives the way they always did. And Jesus came in a manner that was unexpected. He wasn't a political ruler. He wasn't a new set of rules to follow. He wasn't a new intellectual exercise, and he wasn't a lifestyle. Um, Sometimes we expect that the right political leader in our country will bring about God's kingdom. And what a mistake that is. Sometimes we believe, by the way we live it out, regardless of what we say, that if we follow a certain set of laws that God sets up, we'll gain access to heaven. Sometimes we live as if our Christianity is a philosophy that we can have a mental assent to, but it doesn't have to change the way we live. And sometimes we believe our Christianity can just be a lifestyle. We listen to Christian music, we go to Christian coffee shops, we only go to Christian films, etc., etc. You can see where that's going, right? And Jesus came then in a way that was shocking, and he comes to us in a way that's shocking, goes well beyond what we expect of him. Sometimes, and I'm guilty of this, living like a Pharisee, believing that I have rules to obey, and that's enough, and yet also living like a Sadducee and not thinking there's a resurrection and that we're going to have to give an account for the life that we've lived. It's really easy to fall into that trap, especially in our culture where, yeah, there's persecution and it's coming in different ways, but we don't see it as blatantly as they do in the rest of the world. Eventually, the 12 discovered that Jesus was a king. 
that his law brought freedom instead of bondage, that his wisdom and knowledge surpassed that of the Pharisees, and that most importantly, following him meant life came after death, meaning in this life we were to lay it down, and that in this life, by laying our lives down for his purposes, we would enjoy and see true life. It was a total philosophy uh, switch. He was God in the flesh, and he came to them and he said, look, if you follow me, you're going to live a life that's totally different than the world around you. You're going to think differently. You're going to act differently. You're going to treat people differently. You're going to view them differently. And your heart will break for the things that break my heart. That's what he called the 12 to. That's what he called all the followers to that heard the message that he was delivering. It was a brand new life. Their world had changed. During Jesus' time, their world had changed. When they encountered him, the religious leaders were mad and they hated him because what did he do? He set them free from bondage. They were oppressed people. They were oppressed religiously as well as politically. They were oppressed. And there was this heavy burden placed on them of following every law and rule to the nth degree in order to gain God's pleasure. And if they didn't, God would remove his blessing on them. And instead, Jesus said, come to me, love me, let me pour into you, and as you draw close to me and you're intimate with me, out of that will come obedience to all these laws. They'll come almost naturally when you're close to me. Intimacy comes out of loving God, and out of that kind of intimacy and love comes obedience to the law. He didn't abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. But it's through him. Like I said, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they couldn't stand Jesus. They wanted to trap him. They wanted to, to catch him. They were convinced he was a heretic, and they wanted to remove him from the public eye. And instead, Jesus answered every encounter with wisdom. Listen to this. Matthew 22, 36 through 40, and if you want to look at that. And this is all just introduction until we get to Acts, okay? Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He simplified everything by putting those two together and saying this is what it looks like to please God, he simplified it all. And every action, every thought, every word we speak can be filtered through those two commandments and a decision can be made if by the way we live, we're pleasing God. His requirements superseded the Pharisees' long list of do's and don'ts. It made it easier for the people to understand what it meant to follow God. All of a sudden, the law, the bondage was broken because Jesus brought freedom and wholeness. And he called them to holiness. Don't make a mistake. He called them to a holy life, but it originated in intimacy. And Jesus responds to their question of trickery with the best church mission state ever. You know, you read churches' mission statements all the time. 
and they're complicated or they're simple or whatever, but he just said, look, love God, love other people. That's what it boils down to. So when those of you that are called to go out and plant churches, remember Jesus already said what it should be about. Love God, love others. Love those in the body that already know him and love the people outside the body and use your life and your words and your actions to draw them to Jesus Christ. Show them by the way you live that God is real and that he's changed you. And the truth of his sacrifice on the cross will be evident in your lives because you'll have a different life and that will draw people in. Then later on, Matthew 28, Jesus sends them out and he says, go and make disciples of all nations. Go, and the authority had been given to him. He didn't ask for the authority, it had been given to him. And he says to the 12 and to all his followers, I am the authority, I am God in the flesh. I am the one that calls you to this sacrificial life. It means death here comes first. And out of that comes life, right? And so he's saying, go out. It's not a request. It's a command. Go out. We remember, therefore, go out and make disciples of all nations. But do we always remember that all authority has been given him in those words and that it's a commandment? What does this all mean? It means we need to remember, and this is point one for Chris, because I already apologized to him. I go off script a lot. Point one is, whether we accept it or not, we're all living on mission. If Jesus truly is the king and ruler of our lives, and we've turned our lives over to him, we are on mission. There's no way around it. And so now the decision comes, are we going to accept the fact that we're on mission or not? Are we going to fight it? Or are we going to roll with it and say, okay, God, use me with all my flaws but also through the power of your spirit and me doing the things of the kingdom to bring glory to you. But help me realize I am on mission every day, every moment. We're on mission in Colorado. We're on mission when we go a couple states away, and we're on mission when we go overseas. And I am thrilled with what I see in the way church. There's been over 30 of us in the last couple years that have taken long and short-term trips to go out and serve in places where people don't want to go, to bring the gospel, to support believers in dangerous places, and to love on them and bring truth, and to bring encouragement, and to walk beside our brothers and sisters that need the kind of support. This is what it means to be part of the body of Christ. This is what it means to have a life that's been given over to Jesus. Our lives, what we thought they would be, has to die first, so that out of that, God resurrects an entire new life that brings him glory. Can you imagine the disciples' task? Jesus was getting ready to leave. He departs, and they're looking around going, oh my gosh, our entire world is going to hell. We're surrounded by pagans. They're lost, and they need to know the truth, and yet, what do we do? Now, in that way, I have to say, you look around our world, and there's quite a bit of similarity, right? You even look deep within the church, and you go, wait a minute. You guys are doing this. You guys are doing that. It clashes with the Word. 
It's a direct disobedience to the Ten Commandments. It doesn't look like Christianity. It looks like American culture instead. What are you doing? Is the church really still alive here in America? Does it look like the church in the book of Acts? That's got to be the standard. If you look at the church as what it looks like in America, we don't look all that biblical in many ways, do we? I look into my life and I go, wait, there are things in my life that God is calling me to in unexpected ways. And am I going to submit to that? Or am I going to follow what's comfortable, what's easy, what brings the least amount of change or sacrifice? Or am I going to lay it down and say, okay, Lord, time's short. And you've called me, you've given me an opportunity to do something that's different for the sake of your kingdom. Am I going to take it or am I going to run away from it? So as we get ready to look at Acts 15, and you can turn there, we're going to look at the first three verses. By the end of Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas had gone out and Gentiles were getting saved, right? And the believers were thrilled. Well, most of them, as we'll see. Some of them weren't thrilled at all. Some of them were kind of angry about it because God only loved the Jews in their mind, which is not true, right? But in Acts 15, 1 through 3, the church has established itself. It's about 50 AD. It's still young. It's still experiencing those growing pains. You know, if you watch your kids when they're little and their legs are growing because, you know, they're getting taller and it hurts and it's painful. And you see babies and they're trying to walk and it, they stumble and they fall and they hit their head and they, you know, it's painful to grow up. Well, the church was going through something similar like this. They were understanding that God had called them to something great because he'd given them truth and he'd given them personal relationship and intimacy, but how are they going to walk it out? They had to figure out how to do it. We have the benefit of 2,000 years of watching our brothers and sisters figure out how to do some things by both what they did well and what they did poorly. And so we have an opportunity to really embrace God's heart and follow him, even if it's tough. So anyway, Acts 15, 1 through 3, and I think it's up there. I don't know if you can read it or not. I couldn't read a slide earlier today. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small uh, dissension and debate with them, don't you love that, no small, instead of saying it was quite a ruckus, because they stood up and went, this is not right. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Now, this is no small feat. This is, you're talking about a 15 to 20 day journey by foot. This is a huge thing that they were sent off to do. And you can imagine Paul and Barnabas talking and they're going, look, all these Gentile believers are coming to faith in the one true God and their lives are being transformed. Why would this group over here say they've got to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses when Jesus said he came to fulfill the law of Moses and to set us free into real relationship, real intimacy, 
real salvation. That's a long time to be talking to your bro that you've been serving on the field with about what's going on. The Gentiles that were getting saved, they were rejoicing. Because you know, if you think back when you first came to Christ, that freedom that the Lord gave you, that joy, that hope, if you've read in the papers recently, there's been a whole slew of suicides. What is that all about? People are in despair and they need hope. And hope only comes, real hope only comes from relationship with Jesus and laying down our lives to follow him. So these Gentiles who are looking, they're searching. They find the one true God and there's hope. And Paul and Barnabas are joyful because they're seeing God work through them to bring others to salvation as they're out proclaiming the message and sharing their lives and doing the work of the kingdom. And when you do the work of the kingdom, there's a joy that can't be surpassed by anything else. It's just the way it is. And yet it's easy to settle into the grind and forget about that. So anyway, what's happening? The people that are unhappy because the old ways are being put aside or completed. Jesus is saying that time is fulfilled. I come to bring freedom and intimacy and hope that's eternal, that starts right now, and you can have it as you chase after me. These folks aren't happy because the law doesn't have its hold on the people like it used to. Pharisees no longer had the power play, or did any other group. Pharisees had some great intentions, don't get me wrong, they wanted people to live holy lives, but they put people under bondage in order to press their point. Jesus said, no way, I'm doing something different. What would happen here? How would this play out? Would Paul and Barnabas go to the elders and the elders say, yep, they've got to follow the ways of Moses, they've got to be circumcised, everybody get with it. Or would they say, no, Jesus said, this is the correct way, follow me and have life, versus following a human way of looking at things and have death. Point two, and here's what we can learn from that, being on mission is costly for the church and for the individual. First of all, it's counter-cultural, right? Our culture, every culture, has a way of pressing in on the people to attempt to keep them away from the things God intends. The freedom, the blessing, the satisfaction, the enemy wants those stifled. And yet, Jesus says, come to me, and I'll give you all the things you're looking for and things you don't even know you need will be fulfilled in me as you work out in the fields and you do my work. And so, the culture is pressing in and wants the people to look like the culture instead of Christians looking different than the culture, not running away from the culture, but jumping in and investing in the middle of the culture, loving on people that may never receive the message, may never come to know Jesus, but we take the risk to change our culture by being who God has made, transformed us to be, using the gifts and talents he's given us. For the individual, first off, it means we've got to let go of our need for control and safety. <laughs> the idea of control is such an illusion. It's a, it's a mental mind game. You have some control over your choices, don't get me wrong. 
But in the long run, what does it bring you to direct your own life unless it's in the ways of the Lord? Absolutely nothing. Because God is constantly drawing you to him and saying, I want more for you. I want more for you. I want more for you. Come to me. It means as an individual, if we're going to be on mission, that we don't bow to the gods of tradition or culture or the way things have always been. And we certainly don't bow to what other people think of us. And that may be the hardest one of all. Boy, I wrestle with that. Do you guys wrestle with that or is it just me? I wrestle with that. What will people think of me if I step out and do something different as God's directed me? Will I disappoint my wife, my children, my friends, people in the church that I love? Often when we step out in an unexpected way, people don't know what to do with us. It challenges them to rethink things and it makes them uncomfortable out of fear, out of concern, out of love, out of good things. But it brings up these responses in us that we don't expect. And yet, God calls us to step out and God calls those of us around them to support them in prayer and love and wisdom as they step out and do the things of the kingdom. Thank God that Jesus, the 12, the Apostle Paul, the 72, and all the early church were willing to get out of their comfort zone and put their lives and safety on the line for the sake of the kingdom. Imagine if Jesus said, no way, Father, I'm not doing this. This game's over. I'm out of here. Our eternal end would be totally different than it is as believers. But none of the early church brothers and sisters stopped their, their letting their fear or their worry or the thoughts of other people stop them from doing the work of the kingdom. They weren't focused on comfort. They were focused on the eternal. For the church, being on mission is costly too. And so we're at an interesting place in a church. God is preparing us for something. I don't know if you can feel it. God's preparing us for something really amazing. And there's this anticipation. We know God's working in us and through us. And yet we also know that more is coming when we start focusing like that, looking for God to work, looking for God to speak, when we stop to hear his voice as we read the word, as we pray, as we take wise counsel from other people, when we get ready to step out, God stirs us up and he says, this is the direction for you to go. What does that mean for a whole church? It means all of a sudden we start looking different than we used to look, and that makes people uncomfortable. I don't like change. Change is very difficult. It's more and more difficult the older I get. I have to fight against the status quo. A church is no different. A church collectively is a group of people. We can get settled into the status quo. And God says, no, church, when you're on mission, you're to follow my voice. You're to not just read my word and know my word and understand my word and memorize it. You're to do it. Being a believer is being in obedience to me and to the things I tell you. It's not just knowing about it. Oh, it makes a church uncomfortable, makes individuals uncomfortable, makes a society uncomfortable. The first church in the area that I was aware of that had a big uh, food bank outreach 
had a huge impact on the community, but the people around it in our neighborhood were not happy because people from the northern part of town were coming in for the day, and they were knocking on church doors and wanting help, and they wanted to talk to people, and then they started coming into the church, and they didn't look like us, talk like us, think like us. It created a a stir. And how do you handle that? We have a very distinctive culture here in this part of town, just like every community does. As God starts bringing people in, we're going to get stirred up, and we've got to work hard to see beyond the status quo and to see what God's doing. The next way that it can happen is, for some people, the pursuit, and particularly when they're successful in spiritual things, brings up jealousy. Jealousy beyond belief because everybody is on an equal playing field until somebody steps out of the norm as God leads and God blesses that obedience. And all of a sudden, the status quo doesn't feel so comfortable. But the good thing is, as we all do that, God starts to move in us and through us. We become conformed more to the likeness of Christ. God's glorified. Our joy breaks us out of a mold that we don't really want to be in, and we see God at work. And the church becomes who God intends it to be. And there's this excitement. But if we only look at what it used to be, we miss the blessing of what God is doing. And I don't want to miss the blessing of what God is doing, and I know you guys don't either. So as we start entering this new season, keep your eyes open, keep being prayerful, Keep reading the word and seeing, hey, God, this is what the early church looked like. What do you have for us that looks like this? And be thankful for the good things that we see God doing instead of being threatened by them. What are we going to do when non-believers come in? Are we going to be prepared? In the last few weeks, I've heard stories of five devout Muslims coming to faith in Christ and two, in the multi-gendered community, coming to faith in Christ. Just because they made that leap of faith doesn't mean they're cleaned up. Doesn't mean they're living lives and understand the way Christians are called to live. They need love. They need discipleship. They need encouragement. What are we going to do when they come in? And I want them to come in. We are on a time clock that is ticking away quickly. I want to see people come to faith, and I am willing to deal with the mess that it brings. And we have to be willing to deal with that mess because our heart needs to break for the things that break God's heart. If our hearts don't, then what is our faith really about if we don't have God's heart? What does that mean? We've got to love the things that God loves, hate the things God hates, and do the work of the kingdom to pull as many out from the fire as he puts them in front of us, right? But it's going to take an adjustment. My pride can jump in the way when somebody experiences great success. When I've been, you know, working hard at something and I see nothing good come out of it, I have to remember God has still called me to do this, whether it's successful or not. The obedience is the point, not the success of what he's called you to do. If you've ever been part of a church plant that didn't make it, 
<clears throat> you understand that it's not the success, it's the obedience, but it takes years to get there. And I still work at that at times, right? So we've got to be obedient. We love Charles Spurgeon for many good reasons, and he writes in the Soul Winner, winner slide, our grand object is not the revision of opinions, but the regeneration of our natures. We should bring men to Christ and not to our particular view of Christianity. Our first care must be that the sheep should be gathered to the great shepherd. We're not calling them to denomination. We're calling them to relationship with Jesus. The world wants that. The world does not want another denomination. Does not want to have to come in a suit and tie every week with polished shoes and learn every song from the choir. That's not what they want. They want real, living, active relationship with a real, living, active God that loves his people. That's what we're called to share. So as we get ready, as we prepare our hearts in prayer, as we cry out to God and ask him to do his work among us and through us, let's be willing to deal with the mess that comes when people come in that don't look like us, that don't think like us, that smell differently, that eat different foods, that wear different clothes. I mean, I'm glad I'm wearing jeans today personally. Um, but let's be willing to embrace them as they come in. Keeping first things first is priority. Always a priority. That pleases the Lord, drawing people to him pleases the Lord. Lives of holiness that come out of intimacy with him please the Lord. I just realized I'm talking so fast and poor Tita down there signing my apologies. <laughs> you can tell I don't do this all that often. I'm used to translator overseas, but then it kind of makes me talk in one or two sentences at a time. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Our world is changing, and we as a church have to change with it. I'm going to give you some facts and figures that are pretty recent. In decades past, North America and Europe were the center points of Christianity. But according to a November 2017, so pretty recent, six months ago, study from the Center of Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary came up with this fact that blew my mind the first time I read it. 41%, which is 228 million, of all 560 million Protestants live in Africa. By 2050, that'll be 53% of the world's Christians, Protestant Christians, will be Africans. They won't be in Europe. They won't be in America. They'll be in Africa. That's two and a half times as many believers that are in Europe and four times as many that are in the United States. It's pretty sobering. Asia is number two with 100 million Protestant believers. A lot of those are the underground church in China. But let me tell you for the record, in our partner country where we travel, there's an estimated 17,000 believers out of 18 million. It makes us look at our partnership in a whole new valuable light to see why we need to support our brothers and sisters there in every way possible. 86 countries prohibit or restrict Western missionaries. 86 of them. God's heart breaks for a lost people. My heart breaks for lost people. 
not as much as it should. Here's another statistic. Over the last 100 years, more Christians have been killed for their faith than in the previous 19 centuries combined. Think about that for a minute. And every five minutes in the world, a Christian is killed for their faith. Every five minutes. Shocking. We don't hear a lot about it, but it's happening. And here's some more statistics. And as you listen to these, ask yourself, what role would God have me play in this? In 1993, and this is from Barna, in 1993, 90% of all the people that considered themselves Christians felt like it was their personal responsibility to share their faith. 90%. Fast forward to 2018, 29% of the people believe it's only the job of the paid professional staff of churches to share their faith. That's almost 30% change in 25 years. Now, we've come into a culture where we invite people to church, and that's great, and please don't stop doing it, but it doesn't take away from our primary mission in evangelism and loving people, of spending time with them and sharing our faith with them and the truth of the gospel instead of just inviting them to church. It's not my job as a paid professional It's all of our jobs as believers in Christ to be sharing our faith, to be loving those that don't know him, and to be drawing them in, to be used by God. There's nothing better than seeing someone come to faith in Christ because you've invested your life in them and you've been given the opportunity of sharing the right words at the right time led by the power of the Holy Spirit to see them respond and be born again. It's a great thing. Let's look at it from a different way. If you earn minimum wage in Colorado, you are in the top 3% of richest people in all the world. That's minimum wage. If you look in your bulletin insert, it comes from, uh, uh, what's that called? Globalrichlist.com. And it's kind of fun to play with, actually. They have you put in some numbers, and then they show you on a chart where you fall. But at minimum wage in Colorado you make more than 97% of the world's population. So God has blessed us with resources. Here's another one that's kind of interesting that was hard to hear. From a training and resource standpoint, the U.S. has 90% of the world's pastors, teachers, and ministry leaders. And yet, in the rest of the world, 85% of the churches are led by people with no training at all. Something's wrong with that. Something's wrong with that fact. God is so faithful to these churches without trained leaders because he loves them and he pours his heart out for them. But there's something wrong with these facts that we've got all the training resources, we've got all the material resources, and yet our brothers and sisters overseas are struggling And what are we going to do? What are you going to do? What am I going to do? God's calling us to reach our community and beyond and to bless the work of his hands in other places. It's huge. Let's go back to the story and go back to Acts 15, 4 through 12. So Paul and Barnabas get to Jerusalem. 
When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, and I love Peter, you know, because he gets hammered on for being prideful and all these things, but man, the guy gets the job done, doesn't he? He stands up and he does it. He does the work. He's the one that walked out of the boat when Jesus called him out, right? Anyway, Peter stands up and he says to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe the Gentiles. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, verse 10, and look at this, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the, of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Let's stop there for a minute. Peter's saying, look, now you guys are adding laws and regulations that we ourselves, who desired to try to please God, couldn't even live up under. Why are you doing that to somebody else? Why? Were the Pharisees racist? Were they nationalistic? Did they just want a private exclusive club? What was the real reason for that? change was hard. For whatever the reason was, change was hard. But Peter says, don't do to them that was put on us, and we couldn't even do it ourselves. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. God was working. People were getting saved. They go back to Jerusalem. The stories are told. How does it all play out? It plays out like this. The sacrifice of Christ was enough. The law fell short. The sacrifice of Jesus was enough. What can we learn? The young church has all these tensions going on, right? Some of them that had come to faith in Christ were Pharisees. They were the ones bringing down the law that wanted to restrain the people and, and, and put them under bondage. Jesus had a different plan. What can we learn? Point three, for the sake of the message, we all have to work patiently together. Look, we are an interdenominational church. So many of us come from a wide variety of backgrounds that all love Jesus and agree on the essentials of the faith, the very things that make us Christians. As people come in with philosophies and thoughts and things that are different than ours, not only do we have to be patient with them as we instruct them in the truth, we have to be patient with each other. And remember, our goal is first to lead them to Jesus before it is to lead them to our preferred denominational background, right? We lead them to the shepherd. Everything else is secondary. We're excited when people come to faith in Jesus. We just may not always be as excited when they choose our church to come into and it changes our culture or it challenges our culture, right? We don't want to be like the segregated South, but there's all areas in our hearts where we go, ooh, that person's difficult because they don't look, think, and act like me. 
And Jesus says, you're right and neither do you. So let's get with the program and I'll work together and I will, as you work together in humility, transform you. That's Jesus' goal. The harvest is happening. The harvest is happening. And if you read in Charisma News, CBN News, etc., you will see stories and through Open Doors USA of Muslims, Hindus, the gay community, etc., all laying down their old lives for a new life in Christ. Will we embrace them when they come in? Will we help go into those communities to love them, to share the good news, to give them hope? I hope so. We were like them all at one point in time. That's what 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 tells us. God is glorified when we do the work of the kingdom. Point four, that's the first job of us as believers, is to glorify God. It's not to lift ourselves up. God forbid we ever get a preacher up here that always talks about them and what they're doing and how great they are. If our church ever goes that direction, man, let's put an end to it. This is about how great God is and what God is doing and how he chooses to bless and use us. God never expects us to do spiritual work in human effort. That's the next slide. He expects obedience out of us, but he empowers us to do the work he's called us to do. We cannot be fruitful in the kingdom of God unless we are with the vine and grafted into Jesus. Out of that comes fruitfulness. Out of that intimacy comes holiness. Out of that intimacy comes a desire to please him. And we start thinking like him and we start acting like him and we start by choice laying our lives down and our great plans for our future and say instead, God, what do you have for me? Some of you young guys here, man, I envy you. You have all the world's opportunities to make decisions ahead of you. Choose the ones that will honor God now and for eternity as he leads you to. Don't hold back. Don't be afraid. Step in and break the mold of our culture. Just snap it and say, I'm going to live differently. I'm going to live like a believer is supposed to live and not like what the world looks like. But it's a, it's a fight, right? Here's what we see when we step out as a church. If you talk to some of the missionaries that have gone out a couple states away to a difficult place to serve, countries away, etc., you will find they come back with what? Great joy, amazing God stories, and they look at their faith in a living, active, brand new way. The scripture comes alive to them in a new way. I love that. My wife says to me, I always miss you when you go, but man, I'm happy when you come back because you've been revitalized, right? And it's true, it happens. So go away, cross the street, cross the border, cross the world. Be who God has told you to be, stepping into things he's called you to, and be blessed because of it and live differently out of our culture because of it and see God at work. And he gets the glory, which is what it's all about. Jesus often comes in a manner we don't expect. 
What's he speaking to you right now as you hear? What's stirring in your heart? Is God calling you to something different? Is God saying to you, yeah, my decision to do X, Y, and Z that I've been just resting on the edge and I want to put my foot into the water, but I've been afraid. Now I'm going to jump in and I'm going to do it because God's called me to do that. Is that where you are? Then do it. If you haven't taken the time to listen and ask God what he wants from you because your, your plan, your five-point plan for success over the next 10 years has already been mapped out and there's no room for God in that, right? Or maybe there is, but it's only based on how you expect God to speak and work. Put it aside and spend a half an hour. Spend five minutes. Spend one minute and ask God, God, what do you want from me right now and in the near future? The thing is, if you step out in obedience in that thing that God tells you to do, he will lead you to the next step. Won't always be successful. Church planners, raise your hand. Won't always be successful, but the pleasure is in obeying our Lord. And you never know where he will take you on the greatest adventure ever if you're listening to him and being obedient. Our world's changing and we've got to change with it or we're going to die out. Christianity will die out little by little in our church, in our hearts, in our community, unless we're bold, unless we're obedient, and unless we're humbly seeking the Lord and not trusting on the right political system, the right philosophy, the right economic environment, etc., to save us. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ only, and he calls us to die first with life to come. Christianity is not a sanitized version of the American dream in any way, shape, or form. I love this country. I love the freedom we have. I love the rights we have. But to say that it represents Christianity all the time is a mistake. Christianity is not the American dream. It's something entirely different. A.W. Tozer, second to last, well, not third to last slide, famous American preacher from the first half of the 1900s wrote this. I would say to you who are wondering about the spirit-filled life, if you just want to be happy and nothing else, you'd better steer away from the spirit-filled life. The same Holy Spirit who will give you joy will also allow you to share his burdens and griefs. If you want God, if you want his spirit living and active in you, then expect to be transformed. If your life doesn't look any different than when you first came to faith in Christ, I would doubt that you really made an authentic step to turn your life over to him. Our God comes in unexpected ways and he transforms us in unexpected ways. I was telling one of the children's ministry teachers today that the very fact I'm up here today is a testimony that God has changed me because from as young as I can imagine, I never wanted to speak in front of people. God works in ways we don't always like, doesn't he? But it's the way he works. He says, I've put these things in you and I'm going to bring these things out of you because you're mine. So are you his? If you're his, step into the things he has for you. Point one, we're on mission whether we accept it or not. It's just the way it is. So please accept it. 
please accept the fact that you're on mission. I love our church. I love you, you guys. I want to see that joy, that excitement, that freedom, and I want to see God glorified in our community and beyond, don't you? Absolutely. Being on mission is going to cost us. It's going to cost us tension in relationships. It's going to cost us in changing traditions. It's going to cost us in bending and looking like our culture. But it's an expense that's worth it. The long-term harvest is worth the pain of change. For the sake of the message, man, let's work together. Let's bless each other. Humble ourselves before each other. Seek after God so we don't miss the blessings and the joy of what he's doing. And let's bring God glory. Last verse, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. And it's the last slide, too, and the worship team can start coming up. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, I love this. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Hell is real. Time is short. Believers are dying, are being killed at an amazing rate, quicker than any time in history combined. Opportunity is ripe. God is saying, who will go for me? Who will go across the street? Who will go to the other states? Who will go to the other countries? Who will risk giving up the comforts and the control and the pleasures of this world for my kingdom? Who will really make those steps, the first steps so hard? But if you know what God has called you to and you know the deepness of his love, the depth and his love for people that don't know him, and his love for brothers and sisters in difficult places that they're serving him, it makes the first step easier and the second one and the third one. And pretty soon, we can say, God, I am delighted to do your will. Isn't that what we want? That's what I want. I want to see our church be that. 